Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with our third episode about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Third and final. So we'll be getting you new shit sometime soon. <laughs> but ride us out with this one. I promise it's a lot of fun. Yes, definitely a lot of fun. And much like the second movie, there are elements in the third movie, Dream Warriors, that are different. So it is kind of cool seeing how the franchise has developed and changed through the movies. And Wes Craven's back in on this one. Yes, he is. So just a little bit of context from Wikipedia, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is a 1987 American fantasy slasher film directed by Chuck Russell, but the story was developed by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner, and of course is the third installment of the franchise. We have Nancy back for this one. We do. We missed her sorely in part two, even though we love our scream queen or king, Prince. Jesse, <laughs> But it's good to see Heather Langenkamp back. We also have, I guess, like a sub-final girl. Or I guess, like, Nancy Thompson is kind of... Passing almost, the torch. Yeah. Yeah. She's like a guiding maternal figure in this movie. But Kristen Parker is who the torch is passed to in this film. She's played by Patricia Arquette in her breakout role. She is also known for being in Boyhood, the 2014 movie, for which she won an Academy Award. I know her from Ghost Whisperer. I wrote in here that she's also in Holes. She was kissing Kate Barlow. Have you ever seen Holes? No, I've seen Holes, but like I can't remember that plot line for the life of me for some reason. She was prim and proper, and then she met and fell in love with this man, but it was the 1800s, and he was black, and he ended up being killed, and she was so pissed at society, she started robbing all this shit and had this like hidden treasure. Mm -hmm. Sigourney Weaver's in that movie. Well, I was thinking that that's not that, like that's Sigourney Weaver, like not Mr. Sir, but like the other one, I forget her name. (laughs) Yes, I forget her name as well, but wow, I really should rewatch that movie. I remember being little and seeing it once and feeling so emotionally burdened by it because it is so much, but I should really revisit it because it's come up a couple times in this podcast now. And also I feel like pop culture loves it. Well, you know what it's very similar to in themes and action? What? Candyman. (gasps) Like that's kind of like the origin story of Candyman too. Yes. Which we'll cover eventually. Yes. There's so many good films to cover. We also have our character Taryn White, played by Jennifer Rubin, in another breakout role. She's in a bunch of TV shows and movies. And we have Jennifer Caulfield. She is played by Penelope Sudro. She's also in a bunch of TV and movies, including The Waltons from 1975 and a few episodes of Friends. We love that. I... I have never really seen. Okay, we don't friends. love that. We don't give a shit about friends. Sorry, we're not going to pretend mean, we I've give a shit about friends. I've seen it, but never in a way that I would know. But I thought maybe some of you would know. I just like when actors take a pit stop on friends before they yeah. like find the thing they're supposed to do. Like Ellen Pompeo was yeah. there, and then she found Grey's Anatomy, and Paul Rudd was there, and then he found Ant Man or whatever. So I like that it's like a successful actor pit stop. Courtney Cox, like and Law Scream. and Order. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Okay. So let's get into the plot. So we open with a static quote, which is new for the franchise, but they continue it on after this. But this one says, sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. Ooh, damn. Which has been contestedly said by Edgar Allan Poe. Maybe he said it, maybe he didn't. And immediately we jump into what I originally thought was a baking montage, but it's actually a paper mache montage. So we have some mixing going on. We're making paper mache. Soon we see that the character we're seeing is making a house, a dollhouse situation. Soon we see this character. She's taking a spoonful of instant coffee dry, washes it down with a Diet Coke, and then mom comes in to stop the fun. So immediately we're thrust into a situation where we have another young teen trying to stay awake. We can assume it's because of Freddie. So you could tell that the mom is a little absent, that maybe our final girl who we're getting introduced to right now, Kristen Parker, perhaps has a little bit of mommy issues because the mom has brought back a man who's demanding her attention, whereas Kristen hasn't slept for a lot of days and obviously is like, oh, like, can you just sit with me? Can you just talk to me? And she's like, I have a guest over, honey. So it's you could tell there's like some strife there. And that strife kind of continues throughout the film when Kristen eventually goes to a hospital. 
But Kristen goes to bed. She opens up in a dream in the Elm Street house. She sees some jump rope girls outside the Elm Street house. There's also a jump rope boy. Yes, there is. Which we can't help but think is a nod to Jesse in the last movie. Maybe it is. I never yeah. thought about it that Because in, in the original movie, when we saw the jump roping kids, weren't they only girls? Yes. Yes. But now, hey, we have Jesse. <laughs> there he is. She enters the Elm Street house and sees a little blonde girl on a bike. Very, like, tricycles now are just so creepy to me because of Saw, like the Billy bike, like the puppet. I have never seen Saw. I hope to to never never see see Saw. (laughs) But again, we shall see how that goes. So the little girl says, this is where he takes us. And you could tell that (sighs) it's like very boiler room-esque. It's very creepy. The fire churns on and she says, Freddy's home. And then Mm. that completes the transformation of the Elm Street house into the boiler room. Kristen's like, okay, I got to save this girl. So she just scoops her up and starts a running. Yes. Almost a nod to the first movie. She does get temporarily stuck in some goo on the floor. She does break away, but she finds herself in a room full of dead bodies hanging from ropes, which is very sinister. And the little girl in her arms has now turned into a skeleton. That wakes her up and she goes into the bathroom to like, you know, splash some water on her face, but she's still sleeping because the faucet handles turn into hands and grasp at her wrists and Freddy appears in the mirror, like laughing sinisterly at her. And he takes his finger knives from the mirror and slices at her arm that he's keeping held with these little faucet hands. (laughs) And that's enough to wake her and also to attract her mom because she starts screaming. But when Kristen turns around from the mirror, there is a straight razor in her hand and her arm is bleeding. So it appears from the outside that Kristen has attempted to commit suicide via slitting her wrists. But we know it was because of Sir Kruger. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our next scene in a psychiatric hospital where there has been, according to a conversation between two colleagues, a spike in teen suicides in the area. The lead doctor, Dr. Neil Gordon, talks to another coworker about having a new grad school supervisor coming on staff, which we eventually find out is Nancy, which is really awesome. All grown up and professional. Yeah, we see Nancy because Kristen is having a freak out because she is getting admitted by her mother to this hospital. She's screaming, freaking out, waving scalpels at people, being a little bit of a danger to society, I'd say. (laughs) But Kristen's mom sucks. Like, she's just, she just, like, capital S sucks. She's just there being like, I don't know what's wrong with her. She has everything she needs. I read in an interview with Wes Craven about how, like, this was very emblematic of the time. Like, there were even commercials like, oh, your kid's troubled. Send them away to this XYZ. Like, that was kind of, like, a thing to do in the 80s is if your kid was beyond the point that you knew how to parent them, just send them away. Whether Hmm. it be to some wilderness retreat or to this camp or to this hospital, and we'll fix them for you and turn them back into a digestible human being that's the line of reasoning that this mom is taking. And it's very much in line with that whole thing we introduced in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, that idea that you can't protect your children or Mm -hmm. parents are refusing to protect their children. Right. Interesting. Okay. In the middle of Kristen's outburst, she starts to sing the Freddie song, not in like a possessed sort of way, but just in like I guess she's trying a lot of different ways to try to get across to her doctors that she cannot be sedated. She needs to stay awake. And as she is recalling this song, Nancy comes in, finishes the rhyme for Kristen. And because she shows Kristen, she knows what she is experiencing. Kristen then trusts Nancy and a bond starts to be built. So Nancy and Gordon talk on campus a little after that about the lengths some of these kids have gone through trying to stay awake. Gordon even talks about a kid who cut off his eyelids to stay awake. Just gruesome, gruesome stuff. And as Nancy walks away, which she just says the rhyme is just, oh, it's just something that we know. She kind of plays it down at first. I guess she's trying to get more of her bearings before she tries to really assert herself or make moves as to what she wants to do. Gordon then sees a nun in white 
appear and disappear in one of the like the outdoor hallways. I guess not an what do you call it? An outdoor like an alley? Kind of, yeah. Like, like a some, terrace? Yeah. <laughs> I don't She's in an outside space just living life, but again, it doesn't look like she belongs in that setting, which I think is what the stark contrast between like a campus or like, you Definitely. know, a bustling hospital and then this nun is just like standing there. And she does seem a little dated too. I mean, even though this is the 80s, I don't know if nuns wearing full habits was something as common at that time. And this nun is even wearing an all white Mm -hmm. outfit, which I don't know if that would show like superiority, like if she's mother superior, like if she has this really high elevated status in the church, but again, definitely out of place. Also during this interaction, Nancy spills the contents of her purse and Dr. Gordon picks up Hypnosil, which Nancy is prescribed to. So obviously, Dr. Gordon's like a little like, what the hell is this? And in a scene later on, we see him looking up Hypnosil, which is an experimental drug that is a dream suppressant. So we see that Nancy still might be dealing with some after effects of her Freddy encounters. This is what I love so much about them bringing Nancy back. It gives me Sydney Prescott, where again, she went through some shit. She obviously lost her mom. We come to find out later on that she doesn't have a good relationship with her dad, who is still in the picture to some degree, and she's thriving. Like, she's in grad school. Mm -hmm. She is coming back, and they even say at one point, like, her specialty is, like, dealing with kids who have sleep disorders. So she is using that trauma to, again, give back and help others, which we see Sydney Prescott do in the Scream franchise more than once. So I do like that. Obviously, Heather Langenkamp is great, but Nancy, just as a final girl, is not going to be bested just yet. Yes. I believe this is where we have our first group therapy scene. Nancy is introduced as a new member of the staff by Neil to the other kids in the ward. We meet a kid named Philip. He sleepwalks. We meet Kincaid. He seems to appreciate the quiet room. We meet Joey, who is a boy who doesn't speak at all. Yet he has a teardrop tattoo, which it's like... Oh, yeah. He's like tiny and meek and has a teardrop tattoo, which I know has different meanings depending on who you ask. But I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah, that is never anything that is really explored. Yeah, his main personality traits are like mute, has teardrop tattoo, horny for nurse. Yes, there is a nurse named Marcy that we see right around this time have a conversation with Joey, like a very kind passing conversation. And we can see Joey is just goo goo gaga over this nurse. (laughs) We cut to an interview with Nancy and Kristen's mom. This is where mom basically says that she's convinced Kristen is only looking for attention. Nancy offers to get Kristen's things from her bedroom upstairs. Nancy has ventured to Kristen's house in order to have this meeting. So Kristen's mom is like, sure, which even though Nancy is so trustworthy, it's like, I love how in the 80s you just let people (laughs) walk about your house. (laughs) So the first thing Nancy sees when she gets up to Kristen's room is the miniature that she had been making of the old Elm Street house. And just a bit of trivia, Kristen making this model of the house in the beginning of the movie is meant to resemble the scene of Freddy making his glove in the first film. Oh. Mm -hmm. We do like a little like arts and crafts session before the movie starts. So cute. Summer camp. Oh my God. (laughs) So next scene we see is Kristen in bed at the hospital. She is drawing the Elm Street house. She definitely feels connected to this house in some way, but we don't exactly know why. She inevitably doses off. She is back in the Elm Street house. She sees the tricycle empty, but riding itself into the room, tracking blood and then melting, which is gross. <laughs> this, yeah, so many gross things so in goopy. the Nightmare movies. <laughs> I would say the Hellraiser and the Nightmare oh, yeah. movies are the goopiest yes. of... The things we've covered so far. Definitely. (laughs) So she's walking about the Elm Street house. She sees a dead roasted dinner pig on the table, growls at her. Again, free these animals from the Elm Street house, please. (laughs) Even the dead ones aren't safe. Even the dead ones aren't safe. (laughs) Just, this is an animal farm. Just free them. 
the floor begins to pulse and you can kind of start to see like it's almost like the big worm scene in spongebob where you see like the sand like rising up underneath before it breaks the surface but this is the floorboards but there is a similarity because freddy as a worm (laughs) pops out of the floor and begins to eat her what is that worm from spongebob i forget what it's called but you know exactly what i'm talking about yes it's just like that Fun trivia about this scene, when they had made the Freddy worm, they had made it more pink in skin tone, in <gasps> color and texture, and when they went to film it, they're like, oh my god, we can't film this because it just looked like a huge dick. <laughs> so if you look in the movie, he has a green hue to him. They literally just found like slime and doused the Freddy worm in green, which is why he looks like blue. Like that's not uh-huh. a, never like a color palette that you really see on Freddy is like green or like, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon looking. But that's why is because it looked so phallic. It that, still looks phallic. Oh, yeah. It absolutely is. But wow. just not as on the nose or on the head, whatever. <laughs> so the Freddy Worm begins to consume Kristen. But Kristen calls out for Nancy in her dream. This wakes Nancy in the present. And Nancy is sucked into Kristen's dream. Hence, Dream Warriors. This is where we start seeing that subtitle come to life. We love when the subtitle comes to life. So the next day, Nancy rushes to Kristen and asks her how the hell she was able to pull her into her dreams. Because... You know, we're used to seeing Freddy in the dream world have absolute control. And this is the first time that we're seeing somebody that Freddy is preying upon exercise some control in the dream world in that way, in that like extreme, almost supernatural sort of way. And you could tell he's still holding that level of influence over the present, though, because once Nancy stabs the Freddy worm in the eye to get him to let Kristen go she does receive a cut and she brings that cut back into the present Mm. again and then they're able to wake up. So you can still tell that whatever's happening in the dream, those rules are still the same. It's still very much happening in the waking world. But then we go to another group therapy session where we meet three more teens. So first we have Will who is in a wheelchair and we learn that is because he jumped off a building in an attempt to kill himself, but he survived. We also have Taryn who is a recovering addict And then we have Jennifer, who has aspirations to be an actress. Yes. And in the group meeting, the kids are all sort of expressing frustration that the doctors at this hospital are not taking them seriously. And they don't think that it's strange at all that all of these kids have had dreams about the same person before they ever met. And of course, who is this recurring figure? Freddy Krueger. Yeah, the doctors call it a group psychosis thanks to over-sexualized thoughts and trauma, which is like... (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know (laughs) what... I don't know. (laughs) The mental health professionals in this movie are not professionals. I mean, I get it was the 80s and we didn't know as much as we know now about mental health, but some of the way that these people talk to these teenagers, like, what the (laughs) fuck? Where are your credentials? Yeah, they're basically like, get over it. It doesn't seem like the vibe. (laughs) Later that night, we start to see that the kids, although they may be trapped in the situation that they're in, they know how to mobilize because Will, Joey, and Taryn are playing a knockoff Dungeons and Dragons game. They're told to go to bed by one of the orderlies. And after they do go to bed, Will and Joey discuss watch shifts. So you start to see that the Glenn detail has continued into the third Mm. installment of the you stay awake and watch while I sleep. And then I'll stay awake and watch while you sleep to make sure that nothing happens. So Joey is set to have the first watch between him and Will. But then we pan to Kincaid and Philip's room and they do not have the same bond. And both of them are asleep. But then Phil begins to dream. And kind of intercut with this sort of nighttime routine, we see that Nancy and Dr. Gordon are out for Thai food. And I feel like there's some romantic undertones going on here, just because I don't really know if it would make much sense for just one of Nancy's supervisors to take her out for dinner after her first real day on the job. It just seems a little bit like romantic. He's definitely more interested than she seems. But she, yeah, it never amounts to anything. And yes, she remains completely, I would say, platonic the whole time. 
But yes, Philip starts to dream. And we had learned earlier that he has a passion for making puppets. He talks about at one point not having the tools to really do it the way he'd like, because that would include sharp objects. And of course, they're on watch for those things. So he makes them mostly out of tape and spare fabrics. But in this dream, Freddy... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, This is the second grossest part in this movie for me. The worm does not place. (laughs) The worm does not place. If the worm does not place, then what the fuck is number one? (laughs) You'll know it when we get there. Freddy slices through Philip's arms and legs and rips out his tendons and uses them as strings, as if turning Philip himself into a human puppet. (laughs) I don't. I think visually it's great. I think it holds up. Because honestly, like it looks gross and it does a really good job of mirroring what it looks like in the waking world and what it looks like in the dream world. Because obviously in the dream world, Philip is in very much pain because he's being marionetted against his will. But because we know Philip to be a sleepwalker, we just kind of see him like walking like Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And even Kincaid's like, all right, fuck you. Like I'm going back to bed because everyone's used to this from him. And he even walks by a nurse and the nurse is not paying attention but either way like it doesn't look concerning but obviously in the dreamscape it's horrifying because will and joey are on watch well joey in fact is on watch currently while will sleeps and he is the first one to see that something is wrong wrong because he sees philip standing in one of the upper windows as if he's about to fall or jump however it looks from the outside We know that Joey does not speak. So he rushes for help. He tries to get people's attention. He runs down the hallway, banging doors to try to wake people up to get attention. Will wakes up along with Joey. He starts screaming at Philip to wake up, wake up, wake up. The other kids come rushing into Will and Joey's room. They are yelling through the gated barred windows for Philip to wake up, wake up, wake up. But unfortunately, it is not enough. And Freddy guides Philip out the window to his death. Yeah, it's really mean-spirited, especially knowing that the theme that we're working within the film is this teen suicide epidemic. And that's exactly what he's making it out to look Mm -hmm. like. It's very upsetting to watch knowing that it obviously was like against his will, but obviously like he was still feeling so tortured that it's believable that he did that on his own, which makes the idea of Freddy so much more unbelievable. Yes, that is a really good point. By the end of the first movie, because of the awful murders and Nancy's role, people did eventually, I guess, start to believe that she was right, that Freddy was real and he was a threat. So masking his actions as teen suicide definitely, I think, protects his role from outside people realizing what's going on. So the next scene is another group therapy session. This is where we have Dr. Gordon not knowing a damn thing about mental health, (laughs) saying things like, Philip couldn't hack it. He let us all down. Yeah, like, what the? That was so strange. Horrible shit. Mm -hmm. What, What the fuck? But all the kids agree that Freddie murdered him. And this is where Gordon begins to revise his stance on letting the kids have hypnosil. Because in that date scene earlier with Nancy and Gordon, Nancy was trying to convince Gordon to let the kids have hypnosil so they could sleep. And it's a dream suppressant. Yes. So they would sleep, but they would not have dreams. And if they weren't dreaming, then they would be safe from any shit that Freddie would try to pull normally. Right. The doctors are instead imposing locked doors and sedation, which obviously is very, very, very fucking dangerous when we know Freddy has all control of the dream realm and sedation makes it so you cannot wake up. But under Nancy's urging, Gordon agrees to try out Hypnosil on the kids so long as Gordon takes the fall if anything goes wrong. And again, it's an experimental drug. You are dealing with a bunch of suicidal teens on the outset. So like, obviously, it's concerning, but that's what they decide to do. So that night, it is bedtime once again, and Jennifer is sitting in the TV room by herself, and she's joined for a second by one of the, I guess, texts on the ground. He, you know, urges her, it's time to go to bed. She says, please, you know, can I just stay awake for a little bit longer? He says, okay. So she is watching TV to stay awake, but all of a sudden... The interview she's watching with a movie star on, I guess, what would be like a late night talk show. 
turns into a show being hosted by Freddie himself. So we know that at some point she has fallen asleep and now she is dreaming. Dreaming. <laughs> now she is dreaming and she is in danger. So do you want to say this part? Because I know you fucking love it so much. I was thrilled to watch this part <laughs> and Elise like looked on in horror as I was giggling and reciting the scene word for word and she's like what the actual fuck is wrong with you so yeah Jennifer is also burning herself with cigarettes to stay awake which again feeds into that idea of on the outside it looks like these kids are mentally yes. ill because you have that self-harm aspect very similar to the Carrie remake almost but still like she's doing it so she can stay awake not because she has any real like mental illness that isn't coming from these experiences with Freddie. Also intertwined with this scene, there's a very disturbing scene of a male nurse tempting Taryn with drugs. Yeah. And I think that this is only placed here to show just due to a scene that happens later that she really is committed to staying sober, which is great. But it's also just like disgusting to see this like abuse of power and like he's trying to coerce her and obviously like have sex with her and it's gross. But yeah, back to the talk show, Freddie appears Jennifer approaches the TV to try to like change the channel and it's like a huge box TV that's like propped onto the wall and Freddy's head bubbles up from the top of the TV like where the antennas are supposed to be so his head comes out of the top and then arms spread out from the sides <laughs> like wire robotic arms yeah it's very similar to like the scene in the original nightmare on elm street where he has like the super long arms that are like oh, yeah. scraping against the sides of the alley so they pop out the sides they grab jennifer by the shoulders and lift her up <laughs> and he says here it is, Jennifer, your first big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. And takes her and shoves her head through the glass of the television screen and it electrocutes her and she dies. It is awful. Still not my first place for most disturbing scene though, but still super, super disturbing. Because you get the visual of her head just sticking out of this TV and she's like suspended in air. It almost looks like the ring just backwards because she's also wearing like a white nightgown. So it like... Yeah, also like the fact that we know that her dream is to be an actress and Freddie uses that dream against her and kills her with it. Just like he kills Philip by puppeteering him out mm -hmm. the window, we know that Philip likes to make puppets in his free time. So it's kind of like Freddy is exploiting what these kids like, their actual, like their aspiration dreams with their sleeping dreams. So it's like kind of messed up. Like it makes it sad, <laughs> like extra sad. It is sad. I think it's just the line is iconic and has become iconic throughout the franchise because this is the movie where Freddy starts stepping away from like Nightmare 2 where he's actually very sinister and like sexually aggressive and starts becoming like a one-line wonder <laughs> kind of. Like he just starts being very funny. So it's just an iconic line from the franchise and it's one that he improvised. So I just think that's... We love that. It's We, we love that. So of course she is discovered... Very sad. At her funeral, Gordon sees the nun in white again. He rushes to talk to her. He finds out her name is Mary Helena. She does volunteer work from time to time. And she says to him, quote, the unquiet spirit must be laid to rest. It is an abomination to God and to men. And as soon as Nancy approaches, she disappears. So again, Gordon is the only one who is seeing this woman, but is it because she's just very fast? Or is it <laughs> Yeah, because she doesn't there's nothing about her that looks hazy or ghost-like other than the fact that she's wearing white. But you're right. We're still not sure what her role is. is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next group session. Nancy tells the kids about Freddy Krueger and informs them that they are the last of the Elm Street children, which is like, again, logistically to me, we're supposed to assume that these kids like don't know each other until they get into this hospital, but like y'all live on the same street <laughs> and you're all like the same age. And it's just like, we don't think it's a fun dink that we're all just like here, like together. Mm -hmm. And we're all like supposedly suicidal at the same time and mm -hmm. like getting treated at the same time. Okay, anyway, <laughs> this is where we start to derail into weird 80s movie where they tell everybody about Kristen's dream power. And it's a legitimate power that she can pull other people into her dreams, as she did with Nancy. We saw her do in the beginning. 
But now Nancy's like, you all have powers. <laughs> Quite the different energy from like the type of conversations they've been having in group before. Whereas it's like, don't let each other down. You all suck basically to you all have powers. It's like, I don't know. One or the other. This is where I wanted to see Lisa come back with her fucking dream powers because she got bit by Freddy and survived. Oh, damn. This is where I was like, bring Lisa in. She's like half Kruger or something. Like, yeah. Like, she like survived a bite from fucking Kruger. So like, what's her dream power? But no, instead, they all decide to have like a little fucking like group hypnosis and sleep session where they all start to reveal their dream powers, which are all stupid. (laughs) They're all really dumb. They all seem sort of based on, yeah, it's like that idea of, again, bringing together like aspirational dreams and sleeping dreams. So at first they don't think the hypnosis works, but then they realize, I forget why, what makes them realize that they did all actually fall asleep? What's that like? It's like a thing of hanging balls that you click on one side and then they, like the other one like clicks out. It's supposed to be like a hypnosis thing or just whatever, but they all start floating. That's right. Okay. So then they all realize, and then I think Will, a nod back to the Dungeons and Dragons game from before becomes a wizard. You can also walk. Yeah. And Kristen can do back handsprings. Yeah. That's her dream power. That's all she ever wanted was to do a back handspring. We don't actually know that's what she ever wanted. It's just what she can do now. What the fuck? Taryn becomes this like badass leather wearing woman. She looks like she could be like a Cenobite. Yes. She does give very much Cenobite vibes, but in the waking world. She's beautiful and bad. Yeah, that's what she wants to be. And I would say she's more, she definitely, I mean, her confidence makes her beautiful, but she definitely airs more on the bad side. Like she's got the spikes, the black, the mohawk, all of that, all of that. And it makes her feel confident. And so that's her power, I guess. She also knows some fight moves we see she's later. She's spinning some knives. Oh, yeah. She's like, has a bunch of switchblades and she's like doing like weird like flips and shit like that. Yeah, she could probably do that thing where if she put, what's that? I feel like I've seen it in movies, scenes with bars where somebody puts their hand on the table and just like takes a knife and like sticks it in between the spaces in their fingers. Right. She would be able to do that. I feel like <laughs> she would be initiated into the greasers from the outsiders just by her knife play alone. Yes. Because they all got flippy knives. And, and they're then always she would doing get shit. lessons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. she has the skills everyone wants. Exactly. <laughs> But while this happy scene is going on in the group room, Joey has already left the room thinking that the hypnosis didn't work. He goes into the hallway where he runs into Marcy, the nurse, the hot nurse from before. And Marcy is acting fucking weird. And we know as audience members that something is wrong. Because his dream is to sleep with the hot nurse. Hell yeah. So he runs into Marcy and she is very obviously saying, come into this room with me. Let's go, Joey. Oh my gosh. So she brings him into this room. She very suddenly is naked and she has her tits. They're wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Shay and I were like, wow. (laughs) Definitely like some of the best boobs we've seen, I think. And we've seen a lot of boobs in we horror have, movies. So uh-huh, as of yeah. late, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, Joey's dreams, they are all coming true until they start making out. I've discovered the scene, everybody. I've discovered the scene. No, it's not this it's one. It's not this one. It's not this one. Because you hate tongue scenes. I do hate tongue scenes. I do. I do. But this one was, uh, it felt a little bit more comical, I guess. Right. Because what happens mm-hmm. is... She moves away from Joey's face and her long tongue is still stuck inside, wrapped around Joey's tongue. I don't know if that's supposed to be playing into the fact that he can't speak already. Tongue tied. Yeah, tongue tied. So then it breaks off into multiple tongue pieces and ties his wrists and ankles to the bedposts. And then much like the scene from the first movie that I can't stand where the bed opens beneath Nancy's mom and like her skeleton just sort of slowly descends, the bed falls out from underneath Joey and he remains suspended by tongues over this pit of fire. I like have to tell you that in part four, there's also a bed scene 
like the descending into a bed <laughs> scenes don't they stop here. They keep trying here. to make it work. <laughs> they, keep, they keep trying to make it work, except in the fourth one, it's a waterbed. Someone gets sucked into a waterbed. Oh. And that's how, like, they die. How is it? Is it good? It's like... Well, spoiler alert, Joey survives this movie and then is in the fourth one. And it's Joey again. And there's like a hot woman inside the waterbed that he tries to like go and fuck in the waterbed. (laughs) Joey, didn't you learn your lesson? (laughs) He never does. But then like the scene turns into the bathtub scene in the first one where like Freddie and Joey are fighting underwater because then it turns into like a deep pool. And then Freddie kills Joey, but then Joey's parents find him drowned inside his waterbed. That is so scary and sinister anyway he is suspended by four tongues over the pit (laughs) and kind of around the time everyone realizes what their dream powers are back in the group room they then are like oh no where's joey they go they find him and he he's already been so kind of messed up in the dream world that he's in a deep coma in the waking world yeah a doctor ends up walking into the group therapy room and sees them all like just fucking passed out together so it looks like they just like did a drug trip together but joey is in a coma and everyone else wakes up fine so yes he is in much dire straits there's a doctor she seems like the supervisor she's at least neil's supervisor and she is pissed that neil has approved this strange group hypnosis situation and she basically fires him and as neil leaves the property with his little box of stuff he sees the nun again she is in one of the upper towers of the campus the upper tower that philip died in oh damn i didn't even notice that okay so he goes up to get her All right. And she tells Neil that this is the worst part of the old facility that was here before this new hospital. And Amanda Kruger was a young woman who was accidentally locked in this part over the holidays where she was raped hundreds of times. And if you can't tell by the name, this is Freddie's mother. And so Amanda Kruger was impregnated during one of these rapes and gave birth to freddy yes they say that he is the bastard son of a thousand maniacs so this is his backstory which shows perhaps how depraved he is i mean obviously like you're not a product of how you were conceived like obviously but like in the context of in the movie and fictionalized it's obviously fucking horrifying she also reveals that his remains need to be buried in hollowed ground. So this is revealing to us that Freddy's remains were never properly buried. And then that is when his spirit will go to rest is when his remains are buried in hollowed ground. We have a scene of Nancy looking after Joey in his coma, which again, why is she allowed to be there? Don't know. Then <laughs> Freddy carves, come and get him, bitch, into Joey's chest. Oof. So... Nancy's like, oh shit, Freddy's got him. Okay. So Nancy and Gordon team up and start talking about where the hell are Freddy's remains. And Nancy's like, I know the only person who knows where his remains are. And that is my dad. Dad. So they find dad at a bar drinking. Drunk as a skunk. Drunk as a skunk. And she's basically like, you owe me. Tell me where Freddy's buried. And originally he doesn't budge. He's like, well, it was nice to see you. Hope I see you again. But this time, maybe more recently, instead of after a long time, like he's definitely being kind of annoying. And like lay off the Kruger shit. He's dead. I killed him. Yeah. And you can also tell like he's had his fall from grace. Almost very Dewey from Scream where Mm. he was the deputy and the lead detective at one point, right? But now he's wearing like a security guard outfit. So he has obviously had his reckoning over his ex-wife's death and Nancy kind of dissociating herself from him. Nancy and Gordon decide to divide and conquer. Gordon's going to try to knock some sense into her father. And Nancy is going to go back to the hospital because she has found out via phone call that Kristen has been sedated and put into the quiet room. So she is going to be going back into dreamland and she wants to go and get all of the other kids prepared in the case that Kristen pulls them into her dream. So dad and Gordon go, they steal some stuff from a church to take with them on their journey. At the hospital, Max, oh, Max is the tech that we talked about before in the scene with Jennifer. At first, he will not let Nancy through to see Kristen. He's like, I have strict orders. But then she's like, will you let me in to see the others? And he's like, sure. (laughs) 
then dad takes Dr. Gordon to like a car graveyard that's just like a junkyard full of old cars. I hate this plot line. Yeah, it's a really random place, but this is where we can assume Freddie's body is buried and Nancy's dad is like, I don't even know if I'll remember where it is. But they go inside and they begin their search. I get that in the origin story, obviously the parents burned Freddy Krueger alive. And then it would make sense that they would dispose of the body by like putting it in the trunk of a car. But at this rate, if we are looking at time and space, it has been at least 20 years since the murder. Because really? At least. Because think about it in the sense that Nancy was too young to remember Freddie originally. Mm. So let's put her at like five or six. She's a grad student now. So let's put All right. like a doctoral. A mm-hmm. So she's probably at like our age, like 26, 27, 28, whatever. There's that aspect to it. And then you have like the five-year time jump between Freddie and then Jesse. And now you have a big enough time jump where no one knows about Jesse on Elm Street, but they're all descendants of the Elm Street children, which another point... Do we have no siblings? Like, do we have no, like, people who are like, oh, that was my older sister or whatever. Are these all single kids? Doesn't matter. It's (laughs) just the fact that this car with Freddy's remains has just been sitting dormant in a fucking metal scrap lot for 20 years in the trunk of a car is just so dissatisfying to me. It's stupid and, like, whatever. It makes sense to some degree, but also, like, not at all at the same time. So Nancy takes the kids back into sleep via hypnosis and they are just in time to meet Kristen in her dream. So they're all in dreamland. Kristen has succumbed to the sedation. They're all there. And originally Kristen like dreams herself back into the original scene from the beginning of the movie where her mom comes home and puts her to bed. But this time her mom is being so nice, Mm -hmm. which again, heartbreaking kind of showing in a more subtle way that this is definitely a dream variation. But then, oops, Freddie shows up and decapitates the mom. She busts down the door and calls for help. And at this point, everyone has been sort of separated. I don't know how it happens. Like they all fall asleep together and see each other, but then they're all kind of separated into like different compartments of Freddie's dream realm. Yeah. And this is the first compartment we see is Kristen kind of reliving this sequence from the start of the film. Taryn is next. This is the part Oh, okay. This is the part. Okay, so Taryn, she is embodying her bad, beautiful self. She meets Freddy in an alley where they have a blade fight. But Freddy tries to kind of seduce Taryn with talk about drugs. She is resisting, resisting. But then she looks at her arm and her old, like, needle scars blink at her. They're like little mouths almost. Oh God. And if you have that thing where holes bother you. Oh, you do? Which I don't really, but in this case, it was just so unnatural and strange and unexpected that it just was so sickening. Then soon Freddy's blades turn into syringes and he injects Taryn with all five and kills her via overdose. Again, a believable death for Taryn yes. in the waking world. So mm-hmm. again, it all, it all makes sense. I've seen that image on like a t-shirt and it's just like, it's like sick knowing Ugh. the context, but it's like the imagery is cool of just right holding up the syringe fingers. Yeah. But yes, Taryn is dead. Also, I liked Taryn a lot. It was hard to see her go. She was very likable. Especially because her final scene with Freddie, she was fighting. She had moves. Like she had power for a little bit. Like it looked like she might be triumphant and then she wasn't. So it was definitely a letdown if you were especially rooting for Taryn. The next one is the only one that doesn't make sense in terms of how the person would have died because, so the next, we have Will. He's walking in an alley and then there is a demonic wheelchair that is positioned at the end of the alley that tries to like run him over and he like dodges it the first time and then he stands up and does his weird wizard power shit. He says some Dungeons and Dragons lingo and zaps the chair into fire but then Freddy just comes around and stabs him dead. So it's like, how did Will die in the waking world? Like, it's one thing if he, like, fell from a height or if he, like, couldn't stand up and needed to stand up or something because he was in a wheelchair, but, like, Freddy just kind of stabs him and then that's it. So it's like, okay, we've lost, like, the cool backstory here, but whatever. Kristen is next. 
Once again, she's featured, but her and Nancy are reunited. And Kincaid, I suppose, is in like a dream room right next door to where Nancy and Kristen are. And he breaks down the wall. I really do not see any of that. But I, I'm assuming maybe in his dream, does he gain... What's his power? Is he super strong? He's super strong. Okay, yeah. That makes sense because he breaks down the wall. And he is super ready to go. He's like, Kruger, pussy. <laughs> like, that's, like my, that's like my second favorite line. It's just yeah. like... Yeah, like, come out here, you dream face fucker. Kruger, you pussy. And it's just, oh my God, he's so fucking funny. He is definitely some much needed comedic relief here after seeing, you know, a bunch of these teens die. So next thing we know, a door appears out of nowhere. Okay. The three enter and they descend down, down, and down this long spirally staircase. And of course, it looks like it's again leading to the boiler room. It's always leading to the boiler room. We see Joey suspended over a fire pit again by the tongues. He's like bound by all fours. Freddie appears. Nancy says, let him go. And Freddie's like, your wish is my command and chops at the tongues that are holding him so that he falls into the fire pit. But Nancy and Kincaid are able to save him while Kristen and Freddie tussle doing some weird acrobatic backflip bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Freddie also during this time starts to strangle Kincaid. But at the same time as all of this is happening, Gordon and Nancy's dad are finding Freddie's bones in the trunk of the Cadillac and begin to dig the grave. But because this is happening, Freddie begins to realize that, oh shit, I'm about to like lose all my powers and whatever. (laughs) So he decides to yeet into the real world and possess his dead body, which is like, okay. (laughs) Like (laughs) the rules, the rules don't fucking matter. But like, I understand in the second one, they like are setting this precedent that he can possess other people, right? Like I understand that he did this thing where he was able to possess Jesse in the waking world where Jesse was actually the one doing like all of the killing on his behalf. But we Mm -hmm. have not seen evidence that Freddy can like go and do that and possess an object unless the person is actively asleep. Or, like, unless the person is actually a person. Like, Freddy, like, reanimates his bones. Like, it's one thing for him to go into, like, a living person. I don't know. It's like Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, it's so bad. It's just... It's weird, I guess. It's weird. And again, it would make sense. It's like, you could have just had Nancy's dad fall asleep drunk in the passenger seat while Gordon's digging the grave and it would have made sense. Oh, yeah. That's a good But, like, they're both awake. So, it's like, what's the rule here? (laughs) Doesn't matter. There's a skelly fight. The cars begin animating and the skeleton impales Nancy's dad on like an outward poking sharp metal object and knocks Gordon out, which makes him then eat back to the dream world. Yeah, so he's taking care of business in the waking world. And just when everyone thinks they're okay in the dream world, he's back. And somewhere along the line, you know, we learned that the reason Freddy is so strong this time around is because he has been collecting souls from the kids who have died. And he pulls up his sweater and his chest has all of these like faces poking through his skin as if they're stuck beneath the surface, which is really gross. This franchise loves the image of like a head or in a face trying to bust through some kind of surface, Mm -hmm. like the TV, the wall, Freddy's chest. It's definitely a repeating visual. Like, I guess maybe like playing into the idea that the dream world and the waking world are just beyond the veil, like they're Mm -hmm. right next to each other. So, I mean, it makes sense in that way. So the next scene we see is the crew. So we still have Joey, who has been saved at this point, Nancy, Kincaid, and Kristen. They are in a room of mirrors. And Freddy is appearing in all these mirrors and begins pulling each of them through the mirror. Meanwhile, Joey is cowering in a corner. And guess what his dream power is? He can talk. And he yells such a magnificent yell that it shatters all the mirrors and all of his friends are once again free. How sweet. (laughs) 
know what else is sweet? We're blessed with the presence of Nancy's dead dad who like shimmers his way from the ceiling into the room and is like, honey, I've crossed over, but I should have believed you. And it's like, what the fuck is this scene where he's like visiting? It's a pit stop to heaven, whatever. Of course, this is too good to be true. Nancy hugs her dad, but it's not her dad. It's Freddie. And she gets stabbed in the gut with the finger knives. Oh my God. So awful. And also like Nancy's screams of anguish then wake Gordon in the present. Like what kind of weird connection do you two have? Cause you don't. Maybe like because he was knocked out, he was quote unquote asleep. So maybe she also maybe has some of those powers like Kristen has. Maybe she semi-called him into her dream. Just have Kristen do it then. Yeah, that's such a good point. Just have Kristen do it. Just be like, (laughs) she's just standing there. Just be like, let me go get Gordon. Ding. And like, just go do something. It's like, (laughs) let me go get Gordon. She never really calls anybody else into her dream besides Nancy. She never really masters that one. She had said that like when she was a kid, she would call her dad into her nightmares. But Mm. then the next day, her dad would just say, oh, I had this bad dream. So it was never like an active. And he's dead. Yes. Did Freddie kill him? I don't know. But like he seemed to be like a parent figure who would have believed her if he was being called into his daughter's dreams. But he's not around at all. So we think Nancy is dead. But as Freddie is about to kill who? Kristen. Kristen. She pops up and stabs Freddie with his own claw. Back in the car yard, Neil manages to bury Freddie with the formal service. <laughs> as formal as it can be in the dirt of a car yard. And then that is the end of Freddie. Yeah, he like splashes holy water on the bones and that causes this cool like sun effect where oh, Freddie yeah. has all these holes that are like shining through him. And then he eventually like, explodes and disappears into light. But as this is happening, Kristen is cradling Nancy and Nancy dies in her arms. Yeah, it's so sad. It's so fucking sad. But again, we cut to a funeral. We've been to many funerals in this movie. Neil sees the nun again and he goes to her. But once he gets to her from behind some stones and monuments, she is gone. He turns to look and sees the name Amanda Kruger on one of the monuments and realizes that the nun herself was Amanda Kruger. And somehow she reappeared to perhaps guide Neil to the solution for her son's deviousness. The movie ends with Gordon falling asleep with Nancy's diorama of the Elm Street house next to his bed. And then the light inside the diorama turns on. So Freddie is still home. However, I did read that there was an alternate ending to this because Wes Craven, again, wanting to just like button this shit up, wanted to end everything with this movie. So there was a deleted scene where Gordon is talking to Kristen and Kristen's saying how Nancy visits her in her dreams all the time and how like Nancy is kind of like this dream guardian, like how like Freddy is like this dream demon where he can like always appear, but Nancy is now like the keeper of good dreams. Mm. And Kristen's going to go move to New York City because it's the city that never sleeps and Gordon's like wishing her well. And the idea of the light turning on in the diorama is supposed to be Nancy like looking after Gordon. Oh, But because money is money and they wanted to keep it going, they edited it in such a way that it looks like Freddie has continued to persevere as he always does. So I just thought that was interesting. Oh, that would have been so sweet. Yeah. There's at least like five or six more installments in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and they get dumber and dumber (laughs) um, for the most part. So a little bit of trivia. So Craven's first concept for this third movie was to have Freddy Krueger invade the real world in a way where Krueger would haunt the actors filming a new Nightmare movie, but that was rejected. However, years later, it did eventually come into fruition. Craven's concept was brought to the screen in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, that one's good. That was the one I was telling you about before we were recording. Yeah, that is interesting. And you said Nancy Thompson is back in that one. It's literally Heather Langenkamp playing herself, Wes Craven playing himself, Robert England playing himself. And it's the idea that they've made so many movies that they've willed Freddy into actual existence and that Freddy's entity starts haunting the real people making the movies. That's spooky. It's very much like how the Stab franchise is based off the events of Scream. Yes. It's very much like that. And of course, they're both coming from Wes Craven's head, right? So it makes sense that he would want to make something that is that reflexive of the things that are actually happening. 
So I do have a couple notes on how Dream Warriors continues to play with gender roles. We know from our conversations over the last many, many episodes that gender roles play a large role, not only in the characterization of folks we see in these films, but also like the relationship between the victim and the victimizer. So looking at the role of a killer in a slasher film, James Kendrick keeps in mind the theories of Carol Clover, author of Men, Women, and Chainsaws, in his article, Razors and the Dreamscape, Revisiting a Nightmare on Elm Street and the Slasher Film. Just a little recap for the original Nightmare on Elm Street, quote, the role of the final girl is the one element of the slasher subgenre that is kept most fully intact. Nancy fulfills all the basic elements of this character archetype. She is the only teenage character to survive in the film, and she defeats Freddy in the end, at least temporarily. Unlike her girlfriends, she is not sexually active and is also one of the more resourceful final girls in that she sets up elaborate booby traps and prepares ahead of time for her confrontation with Freddy rather than waiting to be backed into a corner. The final girl realizes her full masculinity by emasculating the killer, who is then figuratively castrated and thus fully realizes his insipid femininity. This is given an interesting twist in A Nightmare on Elm Street in that Nancy emasculates Freddy not by stabbing him, which has phallic overtones in other slasher movies and contributes to our understanding of the final girl becoming fully masculine, but by bringing him out of her subconscious and turning her back on him and sapping him of power. In order to defeat him, Nancy must bring Freddy out of her subconscious and into reality where he is less powerful. The dreamscape as Freddy's realm of power is underscored by the fact that Nancy never asserts any control within her dreams, unlike the later nightmare films in which various characters learn to control elements of their dreams in order to do battle with Freddy, most explicitly in part three, Dream Warriors, and part four, The Dream Master. Here, the dreamscape is entirely his realm where he can assert masculine domination over his feminized victims. Some editorializing, the Dream Warriors' acquisition of power in the dreamscape further emasculates Freddy. So now he has less power even in his own realm, which I thought was an interesting development as the film franchise went on. And despite Nancy's original innovative way of reducing Freddy's power by bringing him into a new space and denying his power, right? Because she brings him into her realm and then denies his power there. Freddy still kills Nancy with his phallic finger blades. So I think it's interesting that Freddy does employ strategies of manipulation beforehand, like by posing as her father, speaking kind and loving dialogue, but ultimately kills her in a very slasher villain sort of manner. And it's also the fact that that's part of his undoing is being dealt his own hand. Yeah. Literally. He went and fucked himself, essentially. Like, that's yeah. kind of like what brought him down was being assaulted in that similar way. That exertion of power over him in the way that he's used to exerting power over others is part of his own undoing. Even the idea of his lack of bodily autonomy in the waking world, because Gordon is moving his bones. He's like moving True. his body around. So like that's what he used to exert control over, you know, the children that he abused is taking away their bodily autonomy mm. by like being abusive. But then you have this man in the waking world that is manhandling his body and disposing of his body in a way that Freddy doesn't want him to and tries to like revoke consent for him to do. But that's part of his undoing is that his body is buried in that shallow grave. And that's what takes away his power almost, which is yeah. interesting. Like he has to be managed in both realms at mm -hmm. this point. I wonder if that was because at this point, the franchise has already made him part of both. Like they felt like maybe they had to kill him in both places. I didn't see the fourth movie or the fifth movie or any of the other ones. So I don't know like if that plays a role in any of the other movies or if they just keep kind of like messing around with the rules like they have a little bit already. I'm going to say this and you're not going to believe me. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. The way that Freddy is revived. No. <laughs> in the fourth one is Kincaid's dog. No. Pees on his bones and it turns into fire and that revives Freddy from the dead. I'm, I am speechless. I mean, it makes sense. Why does it's it have like, to be Kincaid's dog? I don't know. It's just Kincaid's dog, like Kincaid's dog named Jason, which is also oh. very funny. Just pees on his burial site, but it's like in the dream. 
So it's like he still has like some sort of influence. Oh. It does happen in like a dreamscape, but it's okay. also like, like why the fuck is this happening? And why the fuck does your fire pee invoke Freddy and like revive him in that way? I don't know, but it's- Maybe we'll have to cover that one one day. One day. <laughs> one, one day distant in the future because it's so fucking dumb. But we hope you enjoyed our covering of the first three. We really wanted to cover the arc of Nancy Thompson, which we could have done just by doing one and three, but I think two is a wild ride. That was a yes. lot of fun for us to and talk about. And especially for Pride Month. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you would like to follow us to stay in the loop with episodes, surveys, things like that, absolutely follow us on Instagram at the Horrors Podcast. Also feel free to email us with any recommendations, suggestions, messages at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we don't know exactly what we're doing (laughs) next, but we love to cover things that people want to see. So if there's any movie that came out recently that you would like us to cover, we have some games that we kind of have in the back burner, very similar to our Final Girl March Madness. So if you were interested in that, definitely let us know because we definitely like to take y'all's opinions into account when we're figuring out what we want to cover. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.